Tonight, it's a new episode of All Rise, the legal drama where one judge is shaking up the system. When I take the bench, I'm taking a vow to fight for justice. One case at a time. Your Honor, we're going to trial. Simone Misik is Judge Lola Carmichael. Up on that bench. Everything is different. A new episode of All Rise. Freedom is at stake. It's important. Followed by a new episode of Bull, tonight at 9, 8 central on CBS. BuzzFeed reporters Anthony Cormier and Jason Leopold couldn't believe what they were seeing. Secret government documents showing suspicious banking transactions all over the globe. Gold, diamonds, oil, every sector of the economy is besmirched by this dirty money. Get the full story on suspicious activity inside the FinCEN files. A new podcast available on Radio.com, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. All episodes are available now. We head out to the Technicom hotline and welcome on David Ubbin, college football writer uh, for The Athletic. He also covers the Tennessee Volunteers. David, welcome to the show, sir. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So uh, in case you didn't hear what what Mac just said there, he said that uh, with UNC Chapel Hill transitioning to remote learning, it actually helps the chances of UNC playing this fall. Do you think the same could be said if similar things happened across the other Power Five conferences? I mean, I feel like this has been sort of obvious for months that sort of all online classes, I mean, just the pure reality of minimizing how much your your roster interacts with the rest of the student body, or anyone for that matter, um, but especially the student body, um, would limit the chances that they're going to contract the virus. Um, the sort of, you know, resistance to that has always been that you can do that, but it sort of taps into the idea that, that student, you know, quote-unquote student-athletes are actually employees uh, in every sense of the word, and that's been the biggest explanation for so many campuses' resistance to it because you have a team facility, you have an athletic dorm, you have a lot of um, ability to bubble your team, um, but, you know, no one's really expressed any seriousness about doing that. So, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I think it's pretty obvious that's going to happen. You know, that's, that's, that's the safest approach. Um, but, you know, whether or not anything gets close to that, uh, I guess time will tell. You know, David, I, I mean, it's, it's very obvious w- what you just said is true, that if they keep student athletes and football players on campus, but they send everybody else away, it's it's clear what they're doing. I, I, I know that you could make the argument that, to your point, college football players already have their own dorms, their own, some places have their own meal halls. A lot of them come back to campus for workouts or they stay on campus during spring break and winter break. They're, they're already treated slightly differently. This is of course a different situation because it's a, a, you know, health is at stake here, but do you think that it opens up too big of a can of worms that if they keep college football players on campus to play these games, but they tell everybody else, eh, it's probably not safe for you to be here. Well, I mean, that seems like the safest thing for everybody. I mean, the whole thing is, I mean, if you're at this point still believing in the idea of amateurism, I mean, it takes a special level of naivete to to do that. You have 100 guys on a roster that help produce, in a lot of places, you know, nine-digit revenues. And so, you know, they want to sort of hold up this uh, facade of amateurism, and it, it puts players at risk. And it makes all of us less likely to get to watch college football this uh, this fall. So, you know, it's sort of a can of worms. I mean, I think it's the can of worms should have been opened a long time ago. Pandemic has exposed so many cracks in so many facets of American life and the American infrastructure. And 
amateurism is sort of one of those in that, you know, because schools and, and all of, you know, the, the universities want to hold on to amateurism, it does put players at a higher risk. And that's silly to me. Yeah. Let me be clear. I believe they should play as long as it's safe and healthy to do so. And I believe keeping them on campus and, and sending other kids away is, is the only way that this is really possible. When I say can of worms, David, the one thing I worry about is if you if you expose this and it led to the, the players becoming true employees, which I agree with you. I mean, they, they, they basically are. But if they were classified as employees, what does that do to Title IX? What does that do to the other you know, athletes on campus that are funded, their scholarships are essentially funded by football. You know that as well as I do, as well as anybody. That, should it be name, image, and likeness? Is that is that the solution here? I know the players have, have put forth some demands, the Pac-12, Players United, things like that. What can this lead to? What do you think ultimately that what, what has been exposed in the last few months in college football, where does this lead? Well, these cries for um, uh, the players' union would have been quieted if they did past name image likeness a long time ago. Yeah. I mean, that's blatantly wrong. As far as Title IX and the funding goes, well, I'll tell you what it means. Is it means less $10,000 lockers, less $2 million assistance. I mean, the money in college football is ridiculous. Um, if you shift your priorities and you move around money, I mean, uh, the facilities arms race is, is absurd. The, N- the NFL makes infinitely more money. The players make more money, and guess what? The facilities are worse. That's where you have to do. You have to move that money around. Uh, and the idea that, oh, you know, if, if players end up getting paid, we're going to have to cut sports. Yeah, it does if you don't want to change your budget. Um, and so that's sort of it's, – it's a cop-out, honestly. The whole thing is, is a little ridiculous. I mean, yeah, it would be difficult. Yeah, it would require some wholesale changes. But those changes would mean a more equitable system for people and, and, and more money going to people that are taking on risk. And, you know, again, name, image, likeness is uh, a part of that. And I think obviously that's going to become a reality. I, I don't know that we're ever going to get to the point where you have play for play. But if you start doing bubbles or sending, uh, you know, students home and keeping players there, I can tell you there's going to be people pushing for that. And those lawsuits are going to have a lot more teeth in the years to come. And, and you know, we'll see how it plays out. But, uh, you know, the sort of hiding behind Title IX is uh, a, a played-out excuse to me because uh, people want to say, well, that if you do that, then well, then everything has to stay the same. You can't, you can't, like, take money out of your facility. You can't chill out with a barber shop or things that are meant to keep players in the facility as long as possible. You can't move that money around, maybe get slightly worse lockers. Stop paying, you know, uh, your your offensive line coach nine hundred thousand dollars. I mean, this is like, it, again, it, it takes, you know, when you when you have that much money and you have to spend it, you're gonna find a way to spend it. You know, if somebody gave me five million dollars a year and said you can only keep getting this money if you, you know, spend all that. Well, I'm gonna find a way too. And then when somebody wants to make a change, I'm gonna say, well. I mean, but so does that mean that I can't just get, you know, a steak catered every single night to my room? Like, yeah, probably. So it's like, yeah, let's get the priorities shifted a little bit here. David Ubbin of The Athletic joining us here on Wilson and Parcel on the Technicom hotline. Uh, David, we talked about the SEC schedule release yesterday. It was tough for me to get excited uh, after what really you know two weeks ago and in, in the fallout from two of the Power Five conferences. In regards to the remaining Power Five conferences that want to play, and specifically the SEC, is there a drop dead date by which a decision has to be made on playing in the fall? 
No, I mean, I think ultimately the decision is to stick with the status quo. I mean, there's not they're not really in limbo of like, are we going to play or are we not? The plan right now is they're going to play. The only question is, is there something that's going to come up that keeps them from playing? That's more what the conversation is at this point. So, um, you know, in terms of drop dead date, I mean, no, it's they're gonna they're gonna push everything they can to play. And if you have too many cases on teams, too many cases on campus uh, campuses, campuses shut down, then then there's obviously the possibility that the season doesn't get off the ground or stops or pauses or ends entirely. Um, but you know they don't have to make a decision to play. They're they're planning on playing right now. David, I got, I got a question for you. So I'm frustrated. I think a lot of people are frustrated at the lack of transparency from the Big Ten in their decision to shut down. We know Justin Fields and a lot of parents are frustrated. We saw Justin Fields on Good Morning America today. But but I think at the same time, if we're going to hold the Big Ten to a standard of transparency, shouldn't we also hold the SEC and the ACC and the Big 12 to that same standard in asking why they're making the decision to, to, to wait? Because we haven't had a lot in the way of 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 understanding why they're actually still playing other than they're just being patient and seeing how it goes. Shouldn't we know the information and, and, and the medical advice that they're getting just like the Big Ten? Well, we're trying. You know, uh, <laughs> they've been pretty silent. And, and at the Athletic, you know, last week, uh, we had a couple writers that were able to talk to a member of the SEC's uh, medical task force, Catherine O'Neill from LSU, and she talked about sort of why the SEC is continuing to, to, to move on while the other conferences are not. And and what that looks like, and we've had interviews, you know, earlier uh, in all this with uh, the Missouri representative. You know, these people have been pretty tight-lipped so far, but you know, we're trying. I mean, I totally agree with you. I think more transparency, especially now, especially how much is on the line and, and how much um, you know players could be at risk here. I think is necessary. You know, we don't have subpoena power. Obviously, there's only so much we can do, and uh, you're sort of at the uh, you know the whims of people being willing to talk, but. Yeah, I think at this point, everyone making these decisions, at least once you make the decision or when you're coming close to making the decision, I think does have a responsibility to say, this is the information we base this decision off of. This is why we're, we're doing it this way. And, you know, this is how it's, uh, it's sort of going to be. I think, you know, the, uh, one of the big reasons why you're seeing all this, um, you know, unrest and is because they haven't really said a whole lot about why they had to make that decision when they did. You know, I think the Big Ten's decision is defensible, um, despite so many people wanting to play. But I think it was probably too soon, and I think that I I totally understand the frustration from folks who haven't really gotten answers for why things were done the way that they were, and why other conferences can can continue to move on. And so, uh, you know, the Pac-12 has handled this a lot better. And you know, I, I really feel bad for for the kids and their parents and the people who, uh, you know, want to play this fall and aren't going to get that opportunity. And and you know, when they ask their coaches and the people around them why, that they aren't getting very good answers. You know, it's not about the media needing to know things or, you know, us getting mad when people won't talk to us. It's about people that, you know, have a stake in this that, that aren't getting the answers that they deserve. Well, David, let's talk about the team you cover, Tennessee. I, I can't tell you how many times I'm, I'm around Charlotte and I see Vols fans everywhere. It feels like they all like to migrate east to Charlotte once they leave Knoxville. Uh, I, I don't know how happy Vols fans are when they saw the schedule come out uh, the other day because this is a gauntlet, man. I mean, they got Alabama, they got Auburn, they got A&M from the other side. I know there was a lot of optimism about the Vols, but realistically, 10-game schedule, what, what's the expectation for this team with the schedule they have? Well, you know, Tennessee's only finished above 500 in the SEC twice since 2007. 
and so I think that's sort of your goal, get to 5-5 five and five or, or better. Um, and that's, you know, somewhat doable. I think the interesting thing about Tennessee's schedule is, you know, for a long time, you know, Tennessee has this month-long stretch in September and October that's hard every single year. You have Florida, and then usually some game breaks it up, and then you got to play Georgia, you got to play Alabama, basically in a month. That's tough um, for anyone, much less Tennessee, and especially Tennessee being down where they have over the last decade. Now they don't really have that stretch. They obviously have those games earlier in the season, but they're broken up a lot more. Later in the year, you do have a, a stretch of three games in four weeks you know, on the back end where Tennessee has normally had a much easier schedule where you have Auburn and Texas A&M and then they close with Florida in a December game. That should be uh, very odd. Um, but, you know, Tennessee, I think the whole cadence of the entire season is going to be different, and it'll be interesting to see how they handle it. But, you know, ultimately, Tennessee's got the third-best roster in the East, so the goal for them is, you know, certainly should be third in the East or better and, and above 500. And, if you do those things and you're competitive in the games that you play against the Georgias and the Alabamas of the world and you're not getting beat up by three touchdowns, I, I think Tennessee fans will understand and say, hey, this is still about building for the future. You can follow him on Twitter at David Ubbin. He is David Ubbin of the college football writing fame for The Athletic. David, great stuff. Really do appreciate your time, sir. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. Anytime.